Well, on January 5th, 1991, Officer Paul Deason was on a routine daily um, precinct run. He pulled over a car for a traffic violation. And in the process of getting out of the car and approaching the car that he stopped, the driver of that car got out and fired several shots at the officer, striking him in the head and the back. Then the driver got into that car and in driving away, intentionally drove over the officer, dragging him 60 feet in an attempt to kill him. Now, three days later, a man was arrested for shoplifting. Now, keep in mind, this is the, this isn't the day before, you know, the cameras that police wear. So there wasn't like an eyewitness to this account. But three days later, a man was arrested for shoplifting. And one of the officers processing him noticed that the man resembled a sketch that was put out by the police to look for this, uh, this police killer. Now, the policeman did survive that attempted murder on his life. How did they get a sketch of the man that shot and ran over this police officer when the police officer wasn't really, he, he, was, he was in ICU, but not all that conscience, under a lot of medication and drugs. There weren't any cameras. How did they get a sketch of the criminal that actually led to his arrest. It actually turned out the shoplifter who was arrested, they checked his car, and underneath his car was police uniform and some skin from the officer. Right? So they knew it. They had him. Right? How did they get that sketch? Well, it turns out there's, a, there's an art there's a, called forensic art. And a forensic artist known as Lois, Lois Gibson who worked with the Houston Police Department, went to spend a little time in the ICU with a police officer. And through some very casual questions, she began her work of piecing together a sketch of this criminal. She begins by, by showing the, the person, this police officer, doesn't even remember even answering any questions, but she has, she has photos of people, and she, of criminals, and some of the criminals have been dead 50 years. So she has photos, and, and she just starts with one part of the body, and she almost like blacks out the rest. And she says, pick the hair that matches the criminal, and then they'll go through all these pictures, and all the person has to do is kind of point to the hair. Then she'll go through and, and look at the eyes, and, and she'll just have all the eyes kind of where, that's all you kind of see, and she's like, pick the eyes that match the guy. Then pick the nose. Then, then pick the ears. And, and through the series of questions, which doesn't take that long, and it's, it's, uh, she has a way of putting people at ease. So anywhere from, you know, 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour at the most, she has a sketch. And she doesn't show it to them. She just has this sketch of the criminal. And amazingly, that is a sketch that led to the arrest of this, of this, uh, attempted police killer. You know, she, um, when, when the criminal was convicted and put away for life, then Officer Deason kissed Lois, uh, in the courtroom for her work. And again, he didn't remember even her doing that. Well, 
the passage that we're looking at today from Jude is, is kind of like a forensic artist. Jude is, is giving us a word picture of what false teachers look like so that you can identify them. And, and like a sketch, it doesn't give you all the intricate details of every single criminal, every single false teacher, but it, it gives you generic um, sketches to help us identify them and stay away from them. So like a forensic artist, Jude is giving us a generic sketch of false teachers. And we're really going to hone in on verses 11 through 13 this morning. And where Jude really helps us to see that these these false teachers are, are doomed, they're dangerous, and they're spiritually dead. And they're perverting God's word, and they're seeking to lead God's people astray. So we need to, to know their general their general characteristics, so we'll be on guard against them and not follow them and not allow them to lead us astray. Because remember, false teachers, false teachers don't come with a t-shirt that says, uh, I'm a false teacher, I will lead you to hell. Right? So they come with a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus, follow me to heaven. I mean, that, if they wear a t-shirt, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be the opposite of what they're actually doing. They are, they've crept into the church unnoticed. Now, Part of Jude's sketch that we're going to look at today involves people, and some involve metaphors. So there's three Old Testament examples we're going to look at, and five metaphors, Lord willing. So don't panic. Um, the sermon won't be uh, hours long. But but we're going to try to cover a lot of territory, because I, I want you to see the picture. And I think Jude would have us to do it that way, where these, these uh, verses go together. They flow together. So let's just look at those verses and, and actually read them together. Again, talking about the false teachers. He says, Woe to them, verse 11, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So again, we'll see three Old Testament examples that that show us what the false teachers are like, and then five metaphors from, really, from, from nature, from God's creation. Now, before Jude gets to these Old Testament examples or talking about the similarities between the false teachers and these Old Testament examples, he begins in verse 11 by saying, woe to them. No verb is, is there. Woe to them. And this word woe is used multiple times by Jesus himself. It's not used too much outside of the gospel. It's used in Revelation, but, but it's not used in too many places. This woe is like almost like a, a word of exasperation when something horrible happens. You know, it's the idea that like when you hear a relative, a loved one that dies, you're like, oh, no. You know, it's, it's that kind of grave nature where in this case, this woe is like the looking at these men and what they're doing. And Jude is just saying, whoa, it's just, it's just naturally flowing out of him. Now, remember what, what Jude wrote about um, how false teachers blasphemy. And, and we looked at that last time from verses really uh, 9 and, and 10 about blasphemy, even the end of verse 11. 
They blaspheming glorious ones. So don't think for a minute that Jude has forgotten what he just said and now he's kind of like issuing a blasphemous uh, judgment on these men. He's not doing that. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's being given the authority by God to issue this this woe, um, almost as a condemnation from the Lord himself. Woe to these men. This this issue, this, this warning, uh, serves a purpose of letting the people of God know that, that these men are on the radar of God. They're not going to get away with what they're doing. God's going to judge them. They are going to be condemned. They're as good as doomed right now. But it also serves as a warning, a warning for any false teachers listening of what their certain future is, that they, they'll never be able to say God didn't warn them about their future, that they did not have an opportunity to, to turn away from their heir and turn to Christ. So Jude rightly cries out woe to them because their judgment is terrible and certain. He knows their future. And it is that same future that Jesus warned unbelievers about. But because teachers have a stricter judgment, their hell will be a hotter place in hell. And Jude sees that in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and cries out, woe to them, woe. And he says, for, and he continues there in, in verse 11, for they have gone the way of Cain. Now, before we jump into to seeing the, the likeness of Cain, I want you to see kind of the overall big picture. Jude doesn't give these Old Testament examples in chronological order, but there is an order. Look at with me at the verse. There's, there's a development. The development is this. If you look at the word gone and then poured and then perished. They've gone a certain way, almost kind of neutral. Then they poured themselves into this air that is eagerly pursuing it and it's resulted in them perishing. So Judah's developing that with these examples. He's developing some movement and progress and also notice the words that he uses. He uses way. They've gone the way. So a way is like a road. It's a path. It's just kind of neutral. It is what it is. But then there's an error. So there's way, error, and rebellion. So again, through these examples, Jude's kind of building some momentum as to where this is all leading to. It's leading to them a full-blown rebellion, and it's leading to them perishing. I couldn't help, when I, when I saw the development of that, couldn't help but associate Jude's development of these, of these false teachers with the development of the righteous man in Psalm 1. It's kind of like a, a contrast. I'll just read that to you. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The, the false teachers are doing like the exact opposite of what the righteous man does. The righteous man's delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. But not so the wicked. Right? And Psalm 1 contrasts that for us. So see the development as we go through it, keeping the, the, in the, the bigger picture in mind of how Jude is developing his case against these false teachers, you know, how, he's, how he is sketching them for us so that we would be able to identify them. 
Well, first, false teachers can be recognized by their likeness to Cain. That's the first example. For they have gone the way of Cain. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. These men, these false teachers, have pursued the way of Cain. And and Jude writes this description as well as in the other two cases for the examples in the past tense. But keep in mind, he's talking about men who are alive in his time. Right? Why would he write in the past tense for men who are alive in his time? He's doing that in a sense to, to almost as a prophetic statement. He's looking at the the entire course of these men's lives and through the Holy Spirit issuing judgment. This is where they're headed. This this is the description of their career as a false teacher. They have pursued the way of Cain. Now, who is Cain? Well, Cain is the first son of Adam and Eve. Uh, we meet Cain in Genesis 4. I'll read just a few verses of Genesis 4. You can either follow along in your Bibles or, or just listen as I read Genesis 4, the first eight verses. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to to Abel his brother, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. That is what Cain is known for. And it's really the larger picture uh, that Jude is pointing to. And the New Testament gives us some commentary on, on what's just happened. Let me read those for you. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. The life of Abel still speaks to us, although he's physically dead. But, but the note, what, something to note there is that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. And that's a better sacrifice, implying that Cain did not offer his sacrifice by faith. In fact, there's good evidence to support the fact that that Cain disobeyed God, that God required a blood sacrifice. But Cain just brought what was convenient for him, which was the work of his hands from the field. And that was not acceptable. But but it was a, a sacrifice not made by faith. So we can describe Cain as someone who is religious. He offered a sacrifice but he did not do so by faith. And keep in mind, this is the day when God spoke to those who are on the earth. We have an account of that. So Cain was not someone who was an agnostic. He had no doubts God existed. He didn't deny that God existed. He talked to God. But, and yet, but yet he did not approach God by faith. That is trusting the Lord's word and being obedient to it. And then there's another commentary in 1 John 3, Verses 11 and 12, 
There the Apostle John writes, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So obviously there was some some jealousy in Cain's life. But, But keep in mind, Cain's biggest problem wasn't with his brother. Who's it with? God. He offered the sacrifice and God, in his mind, God had the gall to reject that sacrifice. And when God came to warn Cain about sin crouching at the door, it says he, his countenance fell. It's like, you know when you're, you're talking to someone about something they did and they, they don't want to admit it and they stop looking you in the eye and they start looking down at the ground. Right? That's kind of what picture were given of what Cain did. He became hard-hearted. He didn't listen to God. He didn't repent. He didn't seek forgiveness. He became hard-hearted. And in his heart, he would have murdered God if he could have. But he knew that he couldn't. And so he did the next best thing in his eyes, which was to murder the person who was accepted by God, which was Abel, his brother. So Cain's um, Cain's sin obviously was against his brother, but it was it was even an even greater sin against God Himself. So why does Jude pick Cain of all the Old Testament um, bad guys? Why did Jude pick Cain as an illustration of false teachers? Well, first of all, we we need to point out that that Jude isn't just pointing to Cain, but the way of Cain, his his lifestyle. So how can we describe the the way of Cain? Well, first of all, the way of Cain was rebellious. He offered a sacrifice to God of his own making. It sounds like people today who are religious and say, well, you can just, you can worship God in your own way. Everybody can come their own way. And they expect God to cater to them and accept them at whatever way they want to worship God. If they want to hug trees and worship God, or just, you know, if they want to... um, Worship God through through Buddha or through Muhammad. They just kind of invent it and go their own way. Rather than worshiping God the way that he has revealed that he must be worshipped, which is through Jesus Christ. It's approaching him by faith. So the way of the Cain was way of Cain was religious but rebellious. But the way of the Cain was also resentful and angry. Here we had a, have a man who wanted to to be accepted for who he is, just the way that he came to God, and God said no, and he grew angry. He was resentful, and and Cain uh, killed his brother because of that. And he, like I said, he would have killed God if he could have, but he couldn't. So the way of Cain is is full of of angry and and uh, anger and resentment, but also the way of Cain was filled with death. See, not only did Cain kill his brother. But because Cain killed his brother and then wouldn't repent of that, Cain also was was judged by God temporally on earth, but ultimately he faced death and eternity and judgment as a murderer of his brother and someone who would murder God if he could. But that's not all. Think about all the other people that were influenced by Cain. Cain's the first murder recorded in Scripture. And it just continued on even to this day. 
as far as murder. See, because he's the father, and since he's the earthly father of murderers. But think about all the people underneath him, underneath Cain, his children. Right? And, and as, as the generations expanded before the flood, all of them died at the flood. Cain led hundreds, maybe thousands of people into hell because of his rebellion. Because they followed his pattern rather than worshiping God by faith. So Cain shows the arrogance, the malice, the false piety um, of the false teachers who are religious. They'll say they worship God, right? but they're actually worshiping themselves. They, they want to be worshipped themselves. So we can look at these guys and say, well, that doesn't really describe you know, anybody that I know today. But, and it might not. You can be thankful for that. But they are out there. And I also want us, as we go through this, to kind of examine our own hearts. Allow the Holy Spirit to x-ray your heart and say, you know, in what ways do I demonstrate rebellion to God? Right? That's, a, that's a probing statement. In what ways? Do I demonstrate likeness to Cain? You're not Cain, and you're not a false teacher, so I'm not saying that, but but we can learn from them an example not to follow. So ask yourself. And and I just want to take a moment to to address those who may not be in Christ today. For you, going your own way, and rebellion is your pattern of life. Now, you may not think about that. You may have said, well, I believe, I've believed in Christ since, since I was a little child. But you have not been converted. You've not been changed where the internal desire is to, is to do, joyfully do the will of God. When you read something in the word of God that's difficult, you chafe against it rather than saying, Lord, I want to do this. It's difficult. Help me obey. So how do you get from the place where where you're chafing out of the Word of God, and where you desire to do the Word of God, that's the process of conversion. That's calling upon Jesus Christ for salvation, and he promises to save all those who come by faith to him. He'll, he'll save you and give you his Holy Spirit, give you new birth, and change your outlook. Right? Not instantaneously. It's a process of sanctification, but instantaneously you're saved and your heart has changed, and then you begin to grow from that. So, so please, if you're here today and, and you don't know whether or not you're in Christ, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't be like Cain. So false teachers can be recognized by their likeness to Cain, but Jude moves from there to talk about the next person, that is Balaam. False teachers can be recognized by their likeness to Balaam. And this again also is in verse 11. Woe to them for for and for pay they have poured themselves into the air of Balaam. Now who is who's Balaam? Well Balaam was a false prophet for hire. And we first read about Balaam in the fourth book of Moses, the fourth book of your Bible, that we call Numbers. And if I'm just gonna ask you to turn to Numbers twenty two. Because there the Lord gives us a Kind of a good summary of Balaam. I'm not going to read all of Balaam. There's actually quite a bit of scripture that involves the whole story of Balaam. But in particular, I want to read the first seven verses of Numbers 22 to give us some background on who Balaam is. So we'll know what Jude is talking about. 
Yeah, Numbers 22, beginning at verse 1. Then the sons of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. So these are the days when Moses is leading Israel and they haven't yet come into the promised land, right? They're approaching that, that promised land. They're on the other side of the Jordan River, right? In Moab. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So the, the Israel had destroyed the Amorites. And here Balak is the king of, uh, the king of Moab, of that area of Moab, and he's terrified. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were, they were numerous, numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Then Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this assembly, meaning Israel, will lick up all that is around us. And as the ox licks up the grass of the field, and Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Peor at, at Philor, Thethor which is near the river and in the land of the sons of his people to call him saying, behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land and they are settled opposite me. So now please come curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to strike them down and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian went away with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke Balak's words to him. That gives you kind of a brief introduction. When the scriptures use the word speak or speak of Balaam as a prophet, don't get the impression that this is a true prophet of God. He is a false prophet. This is a prophet of divination that God indeed does speak to, right? But that does not make him a legitimate prophet for God actually comes against him. And again, we won't take the time this morning to look into that. If you want to read the story of Balaam, you can do so in Numbers 22 through uh, 25, really. Um, again, the Holy, uh, the, the Holy Spirit gives us New Testament commentary on this. In Revelation 2.14, it, it, it says that Balaam taught the... Um, taught the Israelites to sin. How did he do that? Well, when Balak, the king, hired Balaam to curse him, it turns out Balaam couldn't do that because God didn't let him do that. Right? So every time he goes to curse them, because he actually wants the money that they brought him, so he tries to curse them. Every time he does that, God turns, turns the whole situation around and he causes Balaam to actually bless Israel. And the king, Balak, gets very angry with him. And, and you know, there's a whole, a whole long development of this. Very interesting. This is the place where you get uh, a donkey that's speaking to Balaam. You know, the talking donkey. God uses the, uh, causes the donkey to be able to speak uh, that known language to this false prophet. The angel of the Lord appears to him. And it's interesting that, um, that the angel of the Lord actually confronts him. And, in this passage, as well as in Joshua 13.22, Balaam is called a diviner. A diviner. So this is the sin of divination. This is the sin upon calling upon evil spirits in order to determine the future or to make decisions or even to bring, they believe, to bring curses. Right? Right? So this is an evil man. Right? There's no doubt about that. 
And this evil man couldn't curse Israel, but he found another way. He knew of another way. And he told Balak, you know, if you want to really hurt these people, if you really want to take them out, you're going to have to get them to sin against God and let God do it. And that's what he ended up doing. So he, he told them, he told Balak to send your pretty women out. Send the, the most beautiful women that you have out to Israel and let them lead the Israelites into sexual immorality and into idol worship. But those two things often go together in, in, in those times of uh, history where idol worship and sexual immorality went together. And so that's what happened. So let's just back up and say that why does Jude choose Balaam as an illustration of the false teachers? And, and again, we can go back to Jude. So if you would turn back to Jude, and you'll see that in Jude, Jude doesn't just point to Balaam, but to the heir of Balaam. They have gone, they poured themselves into the heir of Balaam. Well, for sure we can say the heir of Balaam includes greed. But we should not limit it to that. He was a false prophet for hire. But it's interesting that the word for heir here is the Greek word um, plane, which is, sounds similar to planet, right? which used in a certain context means someone who wanders. Right? Now we know planets as, as things which stay in their fixed orbit. That, that's not what uh, Jude is talking about. He's, he's speaking of a, a wanderer, something that's wandering around, away, wandering off the path of truth. In Numbers 22, 32, we read of, of God's assessment of Balaam. Now listen to this. The angel of Yahweh, which is God, the angel, not a angel, but the angel of Yahweh, said to him, said to Balaam, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Notice that phrase. Your way was contrary to me. So the way of Balaam is a way that's contrary to the way of God. So the heir of Balaam means being contrary to God's way for the sake of greed. And just like Cain, Balaam led many people into sin. It wasn't just his sin. He led people into sin right? by teaching Balak the method to, to, to sabotage Israel. The heir of Balaam also includes the, the crime of leading others into sin. So Balaam is picked to show the subversiveness, the seductive character, greed, but also of someone who is pursuing a way that's contrary to the way of the Lord. And again, Jude writes this in past tense. They have poured themselves, they poured themselves into the era of Balaam. And again, that's, that's a, speaking at a, in a sense of judgment, looking at their whole entire lives. Now, when Jude writes this, they poured themselves into this air. Um, one of the commentators said it's like it's like picture a, a river that is bursting its banks and is destroying everything in its path, the trees, structures, whatever is in its way. This river is just overflowing and going. That's that's sort of what uh, the, the picture that we're given uh, of the by the use of this word is. 
And Dietman Hebert likens these men. He describes them this way. He said, wholehearted, they, they have wholeheartedly abandoned, they are wholeheartedly abandoned to their covetous course of action without self-restraint pursuing selfish goals. So these false teachers, not speaking about Balaam, but, but using that likeness, saying these false teachers have poured themselves into this eagerly, aggressively. They just run down this path for the sake of gain, financial gain. An obvious corollary to today, what we see today, is the health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel that is taught by uh, false teachers today. And some of some of the largest churches in the United States are led by health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. So you can't say that that their methods aren't effective. Most people aren't paying attention to the people that they're following. These are false teachers that we must avoid like the plague. So avoid them like the plague. But also just take a step back and say, Balaam was motivated by greed. Do I have a problem with greed? Where am I tempted to be like Balaam and do something for money? Simply for money. Because I want the money. You bend the rules. You fudge on your taxes. You know, whatever it is, you pursue something, not because it's good and right, but because it'll make you wealthy. It'll bring in a little extra cash. When we do, like, when we do that, we are like Balaam. Um, we must avoid any kind of greed as followers of Christ. L- listen to Proverbs 1, verses 18 and 19, which kind of has a, carries along a similar idea of, what, uh, of, of how the greedy act. They are like Balaam. They're... Solomon writes, but, but they, the wicked, lie in wait for their own blood. See the picture he's there? They're crouching. They're waiting to murder, to steal. But, but here he pictures they're waiting to pounce on themselves. They're waiting for their own blood. And then he says, they ambush their own lives. So are the paths of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. That which they think will satisfy them will consume them and doom them. That, that's what the author of Proverbs is saying. In the First Corinthians six ten, the Apostle Paul tells us that the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is one of those abhorrent sins that if it characterizes your life, you're not saved. You're just not saved. You can go to church, you can read your Bible, but if you are a greedy person, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you repent. Repent of that sin and believe in Christ. He forgives. He saves. He transforms. So false teachers can be recognized by their likeness to Balaam. Again, they're rebelling against God. They're going their own way. They are motivated by greed. Thirdly, false teachers can be recognized by their likeness to, to, to Korah. Likeness to Korah. And Jude, Jude adds his sketch of these false teachers with the phrase that, that they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. It's not just that they rebelled, but they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Who is Korah? Well, we meet Korah, or at least the Korah of whom Jude speaks. There's more than one in the Bible. 
we meet the Korah of whom Jude speaks in the rebellion that he led in Numbers 16. So I'd like you to turn there just so we get uh, kind of a background in this because we it's easy to forget who he is. Or you may not even know who he is and why Jude is drawing this analogy. Numbers 16, beginning of verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, and the son of Levi, with Dathan and Ibrim, Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took others. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, those called upon by the assembly, men of renown. Then they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? And Moses heard this and fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his congregation, saying, Tomorrow morning Yahweh will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring near to himself even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your congregation, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of Yahweh tomorrow. And the man whom Yahweh chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to perform the service of the tabernacle of Yahweh, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? So keep in mind what's going on. Korah and those involved in this little rebellion, they were involved in the service of the tabernacle. They helped set it up. They helped take it down. They helped move it. They helped do all the preparation, but they didn't offer sacrifices. That was not their calling by God's design. And they're rebelling against that. Right? Verse 10. Um, pick it up in verse, sorry, verse, verse 8. Uh, verse 9. So he, the, Moses is, is calling them to stand before God. Verse 10. And he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers and sons of Levi with you. And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Right? So they were seeking to supplant Aaron. Really Moses as well, but they were shooting for Aaron. Therefore you and all your congregation are gathered together against Yahweh. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abram and the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey and put us to death in the wilderness but would also lord it over us. Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to Yahweh, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done any harm to any of them. And Moses said to Korah, You and your congregation shall be present before Yahweh tomorrow, both you and and they along with Aaron. And each of you take his firepan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer near before Yahweh, 250 firepans. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his firepan. 
So they, so they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the congregation. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate for yourselves from among this, from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. When Moses arose and went, went to Dathan and Abram with the elders of Israel following him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Turn aside now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. But Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not from my heart. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then Yahweh has not sent me. But if Yahweh creates a, an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they go down to Sheol alive, then you will know that these men have spurned Yahweh. And it happened that as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down to Sheol alive, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us, swallow us up. Fire also came forth from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men who were bringing near the incense. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze and shall scatter the burning coals abroad, for they are holy. And he gives them more instructions on what to do with those fire pans for the Lord. But but that gives you an idea of, of the devastation that Korah brought about by seeking something that was not given to him. The, uh, the rebellion of Korah is really a rebellion against God's appointed leaders. Well, ultimately, false teachers go after Jesus Christ. So they're not interested in just taking down the little guy. They want to go after the big guy, right? Jesus Christ himself, the Lord, the master. So they are, they, are, they are seeking to rebel against the Lord. The Lord Jesus is the mediator. Moses was just a type of Christ, a type of the Messiah to come. He was the mediator between God and the nation of Israel. But now the greater Moses has come, that is Jesus Christ. He is the mediator given by God that mediates between men and, the, and God. There's one mediator given in, in all of earth, one name, and that is Jesus Christ. But false teachers secretly work to subvert, to get people to rally around them. That's what every cult does. Every cult assaults the name of Christ Right? Maybe not initially, but slowly they progressively work their way in and, and they want to be considered Christian or the, or the, you know, the, the few that are being saved. But, but they are on the road to hell. They will perish like Korah. In a sense, we can even look at this and just say, 
that this is an attack. The false teachers attack God's appointed leaders. So not just Christ, not just the apostles, right, but also pastors and teachers and elders who are laboring on behalf of the Lord. Right? There's often rebellions. There's often things like this that go on in churches. It's commonplace. It's disgusting and God hates it. And in God's grace, he doesn't open up the ground and swallow the people that rebel against their pastors. Right? Because God's a God of grace. In the Old Testament and here, this is, these are given as an example. Right? But just check your heart. Right? That you are not being rebellious like Korah. Right? That's, that's very convicting. Right? That God appoints leaders over us. Um, and the whole idea of perishing here is not just physical death. To perish means to die in your sins. Paul uses that term in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 and 18. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I mean, if Christ has not been raised, all those who died professing faith in Christ then they've, they've perished. They, they've gone and they're awaiting their judgment um, in Sheol. They're awaiting their judgment for eternity. But of course, Christ has been raised. That's, that's Paul's point. There is hope. They haven't perished. But, but uh, Paul is using that term in the very similar way that Jude is using the idea of perished. So false teachers rebel against God's mediator. So ask yourself, in what ways am I easily led into rebellion? When someone starts complaining about someone else, especially a leader, are you easily led into rebellion? Again, just check your heart that you're not like Korah. Well, we've looked at three teach three the false teachers, and I wanted to spend more time there because I, uh, we're less familiar with those. And Jude doesn't end with them. He continues on his description or his sketch of the false teachers with five metaphors. And we're going to hit these very quickly, right? Because Jude hits them very quickly. And, and, and there's, there's some depth to them, but these are relatively easy to grasp. These are men who are hidden reefs. Hidden reefs. So you could say that, that the false teachers are going to be recognized by their self-serving lifestyles that are very destructive to others. When, when Jude says they are like hidden reefs, the men are hidden reefs in your love feast, he's, he's thinking of the idea of, of, of rocks which lie just below the waters. So a ship can't see it. Ship then sails into it and sinks. Right? That's, that's kind of the imagery that he's, he's drawing. Now, if the rock is high, then the captain of the ship can see it and avoid it. If the rock is low in the water, then the ship can sail over it. But these are rocks that are very dangerous depth, not easily seen, and the ship sails into it, and it creates um, disaster for the ship. So he's, he's, he's calling these, they're like hidden reefs, and look, he says, in your love feast. Now, the love feast was a gathering of the saints of a local church. They would have a meal together that they would call love feast. People would bring whatever they have. The poor would come, the rich would come, and everybody would have enough. And this is the very love feast kind of idea that these love feasts is what Paul is, is really rebuking, in a sense, the misuse of these love feasts in 1 Corinthians 11. We won't go there and, and turn there, but that's, that's sort of the situation. At these love feasts, there would be teaching. At the end of the love feast, there would be a celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
So Judah saying, these men are, are feasting with you. They look like they're with you. But what they really are is just serving themselves. And he says that. They're, they're doing that without fear. Um, there in verse 12, he says, in your, they, they, these, are, these men are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They're not fearful of God's judgment at all. They're just out doing what they're, what they're, um, they're, they're doing. They're out to fulfill their own mission and go their own way. They're not fearful of God's judgment at all. And they're just serving themselves. But in the process, they are, act like, like reefs that shipwreck the faith of others for those that follow them. And Judah's warning us that these false teachers are destructive. Second um, Peter 2.14 describes the false teachers this way. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They are accursed children. So these false teachers seek people to lead astray, to, to use and abuse. They have hearts that are trained in greed. They're enticing unstable souls. So again, it's a reason to cling to the Word of God, to, to, to contend earnestly for the faith that you do not be in unstable, but be stable. So you can't be enticed away from the truth. Then his next metaphor is, that, is, is something we could say, false teachers are recognized by their empty spiritual promises. Not only their self-serving lifestyles, which are dangerous to others, but also by their, by their empty spiritual promises. Look at the next metaphor he uses. They, he calls them clouds without water carried along by winds. It's an easy illustration to grasp. You have a farmer. His crops are dry. Without, without rain, those crops are going to die and be of no benefit. All his labor will go to waste. He sees some clouds that look like rain clouds. He gets his hopes up, but the clouds come and the clouds go by. They're blown by the wind with no benefit. The ground's still dry. The clouds promised water, but delivered nothing. That's like these false teachers. They make spiritual promises, but they can provide nothing. Again, Second um, Peter 2 is helpful here. Just going to give a little bit of a parallel. Second Peter 2, verses 18 and 19 says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity... They entice by sensual lust to the flesh, those who barely escape from the ones who conducted themselves in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For what by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So they're promising freedom, right? That's the cloud that looks like it's going to bring rain. But in the end, they're bringing greater slavery, which is more dry, spiritual dryness. So Judah's saying that false teachers are going to promise great spiritual blessings, but they cannot deliver on those promises because these men are dead themselves. They don't bring any genuine spiritual benefit. So they're recognized by their self-serving lifestyles. They're recognized by their empty spiritual promises. The third metaphor, false teachers can be recognized by the lack of spiritual fruit and deadness. And here, the, the picture gets a little bit even darker. That he says they're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. What's the picture? The picture is that of a tree, a fruit tree, that should have abundant fruit on it. Right? Autumn, right? It's the time of harvest. That true tree should have fruit, but it's not. It's fruitless. It's an autumn tree 
it's fruitless. So from the standpoint of the farmer, the person who's expecting some fruit, that tree is dead because it's not producing fruit. It looks alive, but it's dead. It's not producing fruit. And Jude adds to the metaphor by saying they're doubly dead being uprooted. Right? So it's a very graphic example of that. Right? So not only do these trees not produce fruit, right, but they're doubly dead. That's the first way they're dead. The second way they're dead is they've been uprooted. Right? And, and it's a passive verb that's used there implying that God is the one who's done the uprooting. Right? There's no life in them because they're not connected to the ground. Right? So there are times where in California, because of the, all the water restrictions, uh, farmers have had to literally rip the trees out of the ground and you can see them piled up and just drying um, in order to preserve the small crop they have because they're only limited a certain amount of water by the government. We won't get into politics. But but that's that's an example. These trees just get ripped out of the ground and are left to dry and die. Right? No future for them. And, and that's the illustration that, that Jude gives here. Sort of like the, the fruitless fig that we read about in Luke 13 where the, 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 the owner of the fig comes and, and you know for three years and there's no fruit on the fig and he's like, cut it down and then the gardener says you know well we'll give it one more year i'll 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 put fertilizer around it i'll take care of it if there's no fruit by the end of the fourth year cut it down right so it's kind of that it's a similar illustration in that illustration they're cutting it down this illustration they're just ripping it out of the ground it's it's just why is it why is it even useful to take up the ground just get rid of it so these men recognize the self-serving lifestyles by the lack of spiritual fruit um, and their deadness, but but Jude's not done. False teachers can be recognized by shameful and corrupting influences. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. So the beach can be a very pleasant experience. You can walk along kind of a, when, when the waves aren't bashing you know, and the sun's shining, it's all nice, and you can enjoy your time there. But when the when the storms come, those those waves kick up. And especially if you're on a beach that doesn't have a wide beach, you're on a narrow beach, it, it can be quite dangerous to be on the beach when those waves are kicking up, the wild waves are kicking up. But here he's speaking about not only wild waves, but they're they're producing foam. Ever seen the sea foam that's produced when when the storms really kick up and those waves are really just bashing? Is that sea foam? nice? Is that a pleasant experience? It's not at all. And especially after the storm leaves, then all that kind of foam, it has dead fish, it has trash, it has all this kind of nasty bacteria. You know, it's just, that's that's the image that, that Jude is providing here. They are, these false teachers are corrupting. They have a corrupting influence. And that, that's what he, the picture he wants to get across to us. So, these false teachers corrupt others. And Jude may be borrowing some analogy from Isaiah. In Isaiah 57, 20, we read this. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, as its waters toss up refuse and mud. So it's a similar idea that, of that contaminating foam. And that foam, he says, they're casting up their, their shame. If you look at, see how he words that. They are casting, in verse 13, they're casting up their own shame like foam. So the, as, the, as those wild waves cast up foam, and you can easily see it, so these men, 
do their shameful deeds without, without shame. They pursue their sin without shame. They, they put it out there in front of everybody. And they are not shameful for it. So unashamed boldness in, in sin is something that is clearly the mark of, of a false teacher. And um, just that corrupting influence that they have on others. They're, lead, they're sinning and they're leading others into sin. And then the last metaphor that Jude provides there, the end of verse 13, he says, They are wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So the idea of a star, and he's not, he's not being scientific here with his use of the word star. He doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean a star as we define it today um, in, in our sciences. But he's, he's saying that as you look up into the heavenly bodies, if there is a, if there is a star and it goes by, and, it's, and if it's in its orderly pattern, it will come back. But the ones who are wandering, they don't ever come back. And Jude, maybe Jude had in mind something what we call like a shooting star. Um, we're, we're not really sure, but it, but that communicates with us kind of the ideas. It's it's like it's just a vapor. It's here, it's gone, and it goes into the black darkness, never to return. That black darkness is a picture of of judgment, of God's judgment. And notice how he words it. He says that the black darkness has been reserved forever for these men. God has done that. God takes these men and, 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 and reserves them for judgment because of how they live. So in this last trait, false teachers, we could say false teachers can be recognized by their spiritual instability. They're wanderers. Right? A similar idea we saw earlier. And, and, and these sketches that, that Jude gives us are familiar because as Jude works through this, his short letter, he brings back things that he had said earlier. A little, a little uh, tinge of rebellion in verse 4 turns into greater rebellion, and we see that developed in, in multiple ways through these examples and metaphors. Keep in mind, just un, as we look at verse 13, again, I could just reference what Second Peter 2, 9 says, that the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lusts and despise authority. So Jude's purpose is a little different than Second Peter, but Second Peter is just reminding us the fact that the Lord is going to preserve those who follow him, who remain steadfast, and he's going to keep false teachers under judgment. They're not going to get away with their, uh, with their activities. They will be held accountable. So that's why Jude says the black darkness has been reserved for them. God's judgment has been reserved for them. So Jude gives us a sketch of the false teachers. They're similar to Cain, to Balaam, to Korah. They, they live self-serving lifestyles, make empty spiritual promises, don't have any spiritual, genuine spiritual fruit. They are spiritually dead. They are shameful. They have corrupt desires and they corrupt others. And they're spiritually unstable. Remember uh, the sketch I talked to you about, uh, mentioned at the beginning of the message. Uh, Lois Gibson, by 2002, that's the forensic artist that helped uh, capture the, the man who tried to murder the police officer. Her name is Lois Gibson. So by 2002, Lois Gibson had sketched more than 3,000 criminals. Uh, her sketches helped lead to the arrest of 751 criminals, which is impressive. 
so impressive that her name is in the Guinness World Book Records uh, as the most successful forensic artist. But the sad reality is only 751 got away. Now you can say 751 got caught, but over 3,000 are the ones she drew. So even the most successful forensic artist here on Earth has a, has a capture rate of less than 30%. But God has given us a perfectly accurate sketch of the false teachers so that we would contend for the faith, hold fast to the faith, that we would avoid the false teachers. And remember, like unlike the earthly artists who do their best to sketch the bad guys, God knows exactly what these guys look like. And he's given us a perfectly accurate sketch. And God has a 100% capture rate. No one's going to get away. So trust his word. Hold fast to it. Earnestly contend for the faith. And don't be led astray by these false teachers. And there are many in our world today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful that you are a God who loves us, that you are a good shepherd, and you have not left us to defend ourselves, but you protect us. And one of the ways that you protect us is by giving us your word to guide us and instruct us that we would not um, be harmed or damaged by these men. And we know you are working for us. And you also call us, Lord, to exercise discernment and judgment and just ask, Lord, that you would help us to do that, that we would not be influenced by false teachers or follow false teachers. Lord God, work in our lives to help us to contend earnestly for the faith, to remain steadfast in the word of God and to encourage others to do likewise. Protect all those, Lord, who are yours. Um, And we just pray, Lord, for any unbelievers here this morning that they would fall upon Fall upon under your fall under your conviction of sin, and they would flee to you and receive salvation even today. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.